Say you're a professional landscaper. You're not just tough. You're professional grade. And so are your tools. Because you got best-in-class Echo X series products. You got a perfect balance of power, weight, and performance from a professional-grade 56-volt battery system. Max-out battery tech that gives 100% power till a 0% charge. Echo X series means best-in-class tools for best-in-class pros. So when we say Echo is professional-grade, we mean it. Echo. Power on and on. We got another day of NBA action. And with FanDuel, every night is a watch party. So it's time for your FanDuel crew to make their bets. So, what's the move tonight, gang? You know that new customers who bet $5 get $200 back in bonus bets if you win. Woohoo! We're heating up, fam. Bet all the stars with all your friends and make every moment more only on FanDuel. New customers bet $5, get $200 back in bonus bets if you win. Make every moment more with FanDuel. It goes down in the dim. It go down. It go down in the dim. 21 plus and present in Virginia. First online real money wager only. $10 first deposit required. Bonus issued is non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire seven days after receipt. See full terms at FanDuel.com slash sportsbook. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Please be advised, this podcast contains graphic audio and themes that may not be appropriate for all listeners. This was our community. I live, you know, in this neighborhood, as do a lot of my colleagues. I think there were a lot of moments that reminded folks of September 11th. I mean, this was different in that it happened without explanation in the dead of night, leaving a lot of people just without any answers for so long. I do think that comparison is apt, though, when people talk about the smell and the dust and the just desperation of family members who hadn't heard from their loved ones. That's Miami Herald reporter Sam Gross on how the shock of the disaster in Surfside rippled through this small seaside community and far beyond its borders, raising so many questions, some that may never be answered. I'm Paul Bieben, and in episode four, we're going to hear from the Herald's investigative reporters as they try to unravel the mystery of how and why the building went down in the middle of the night. And we'll hear more from the search and rescue team as their massive operation makes a final push to try to find survivors and keep the families of the missing informed. We pick up the story one week after the collapse on July 1st. Not a single soul has been found alive since the early hours. Progress has been difficult. Summer winds and rain are forcing frequent stops on the site, and there are increasing concerns that the part of the building still standing could fall. President Biden and First Lady Jill have traveled to South Florida to console the grieving friends and families. The first couple held hands while Miami-Dade Mayor Daniela Levine-Cava introduced them. We're here for you to have a chance to talk with the president. Whatever is on your mind, your thoughts, your questions, your suggestions, 
we're here for you. And uh, the president has time to visit with you at the tables as well as to talk to you in the room. Y ahora, para ustedes todos, y también más circular para hablar con ustedes en meses. This event was closed to the press, but was captured and uploaded to Instagram by Jackie Patoka, the woman who recorded the material we heard in episode three. She's a local resident who was very close to a missing couple and their daughter. And very few people outside of this room have heard this exchange with the president until now. Mr. President. Thank you. You know, uh you have a lot of people saying, yeah, I know how you feel. And I got a phone call saying my wife was dead, and my daughter was dead, and my two sons were likely to not live. It took four hours to get to Charles and Light to get them out of the car and try to chill with us. Do I want this translated? Do you want to? Just a few blocks away from where this group lost their loved ones, the president shared his own experience with tragedy and despair. He stopped to make sure every thought was translated into Spanish. It was 49 years ago when President Biden, then a junior senator from Delaware, lost his wife and his 13-month-old daughter to a car accident. It used to drive me crazy when they said, I know how you feel. And you know they meant well, but I know they had no idea. No. But you know, uh, it never really goes away. And you never, you never want to give up hope. The only thing I can tell you is that uh, you know, some of us have some idea how you feel. There must be something I can tell you. I'm telling you that it's all going to be better. But I can't. So the waiting, the waiting is unbearable. And even husbands and wives. The president's words and solemn tone bring Jackie Patoka to tears. This is the first major tragedy to rock the country since Biden was sworn in as president just six months before. On the day of the collapse, he signed an executive order declaring a disaster in Surfside, which authorized the federal government to cover all of the search and rescue costs for the first 30 days. Biden would spend more than three hours with the families. And before returning to Washington, he spoke at a press conference about trying to help them grieve 
about coming to terms with the shock of sudden loss, just as he'd been forced to do so many years before. I sat with one woman who had just uh, lost her, her husband and her little baby boy. Didn't know what to do. I sat with another family that lost almost an entire family, cousins, brothers, sisters. And to watch them, and to, the, 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 they're, they're praying and pleading that God, let there be a miracle. Jill and I wanted them to know that we're with them and the country's with them. Our message today is that we're here for you as one nation, as one nation. At the time of that meeting, 18 people had been confirmed dead, but more than 140 were still missing. Now, these numbers would change every day, even every hour. But at this point, two things were clear. Surely, this was one of the worst building disasters in history. But the total loss was yet to be tallied. As the search for survivors continued, the Miami Herald's investigative unit was searching for answers. Reporter Sarah Blasky says the learning curve on a story about structural failure was very steep. This was something they'd never covered before, and it had happened right in their own community, in a building very similar to many of the buildings that Herald staffers lived in themselves. They'd be working together on a story that literally hit home, and they'd have to look out for each other. The first thing I remember doing that morning was texting Joey Flechas, who was at the site. And I asked him how it was going and if he was okay. And I told him to wear a mask because collapsed sites are very toxic. And I was worried about him. Then I texted my boss, Casey Frank, and I said, what should I do? Where do you need me? He said he wanted me on trying to figure out what could have gone wrong. He wanted me to understand how old this building was. Was it dilapidated? What would engineers have recommended? I didn't know anything about engineering. I've never taken a structural engineering course in my entire life. And so that morning, my job was to do a crash course in understanding concrete construction. What became Clear almost immediately was that buildings don't just fall down, not in the United States and frankly, not really anywhere. They don't just fall for no reason in the middle of the night when it's not really raining and there's no earthquake and there's no gas leak or anything like that. It just doesn't happen. And so the question quickly became, well, why did it happen in this case. And so that's really what we focused on as a team. We didn't have enough information to even begin to guess. We didn't know what type of construction was even used in this tower. We didn't have the building plans. So all we could do is kind of understand generally why a building like this may have failed. And that's what we spent the first 24 hours on. On that first day, there was still a lot of speculation about what might have caused this. That's Herald reporter Aaron Leibowitz. While Sarah Blasky was trying to find some kind of historical context for this disaster, 
Leibowitz was cutting through some of the early explanations. Whether it could have been a sinkhole about the building possibly physically sinking over time. People were talking about maybe an offshore blast, an offshore Navy test could have had something to do with this, which on the one hand sounded far-fetched, but we also were in a moment where no one had any idea. It's not like it was completely out of the question because no one knew. Leibowitz's usual beat is local government. He spends a lot of time poring over piles of paperwork. And that first morning, his job was to start tracking down Surfside's building records. I drove from my apartment to Town Hall, which is past where the collapsed building was, and knew that there was kind of a chaotic scene right across the street where all the families were gathering. But in Town Hall, it was almost eerily kind of quiet, uh, which felt really strange given what had happened. Leibowitz hoped that the paper trail would start filling in the blanks about what might have gone wrong. Had there been any red flags, any warning signs of trouble? One of the things I really like about my job as a local government reporter and as a journalist in general is that there's paper behind everything. There are records. And so any questions you have about the history of a building or a piece of legislation or anything, these, these towns should have it. And you should be able to ask them for it and get it. People will try to spin you and give you a lot of BS about how things came together and why things are being done, but there's always records that should tell the real story. Whether there were code violations, reports, any records that might tell us something about the state of the building. What condition was this thing in? We knew maybe some very basic information that it was built in 1981, that there were a couple of sister towers nearby, but we really didn't know anything else. So we were operating under many, many assumptions, and I began to research what should have happened. I talked to Rick Hirsch, our managing editor, who owns a condo in an aging building in Miami and had just been through a process called the 40-year recertification in his own building. And so what he explained to me is that when buildings of a certain size turn 40, they have to be inspected by an engineer. And then any structural problems, any damage needs to be fixed. Otherwise, the building can be slated for demolition. And so he was telling me that this was a process that he thought maybe Champlain Towers had had needed to go through. Hirsch was right. Not only that, it turned out that at the time of the collapse, Champlain Towers South was struggling to comply with that 40-year recertification process. Back in 2018, the Condo Association hired a structural engineer named Frank Morabito to inspect the building. Morabito's findings and his report were damning. There were serious problems that would cost millions to repair. The Herald rushed to report what the records had revealed. He noted major structural damage, specifically due to water intrusion in the building. 
And the reason he said that water intrusion was so bad in this building was because the pool deck, this flat piece of concrete, you know, extending beyond the pool where people would gather and have parties and all of that, this pool deck, which also sat on top of the underground parking garage, um, it had been built without a slant, which seemed like not a big deal to me until you think about it. You need a slant in order for rainwater to drain. And when you don't have a slant, rainwater just sits on this slab. And it had been sitting that way, according to Frank Morabito, for 40 years. And that water sunk down into this concrete slab and began to do damage, right? And so that's what this report said that we got back late at night and we stayed up, it was me and Aaron and a bunch of our colleagues staying up and reading this report, 10, 11 p.m. at night. Um, and we we actually published this information, I think around 2.30 in the morning, um, Saturday morning, Friday night, however you wanna think about that within the first couple of days of the collapse. And, and that was our first indication that there was actually some record of of things not being right in this building. The question now was whether this was the smoking gun or just the beginning. How could water damage on a pool deck lead to an entire wing of a building coming down? Was this the fatal flaw? Again, Aaron Leibowitz. As soon as I glanced at these documents, I realized that it was probably a big deal. This was the first time that I had seen anything that pointed to problems with the building. And so my instinct was that this was probably big. Sarah and I started putting together a story about what we thought were the most significant parts. And we published it around 2.30 a.m. before anyone else had written about it. I think at that point, we knew that we were in for the long haul on investigating what was going on with this building. Uncovered just two days after the collapse, the 2018 report raised some chilling questions, and not only about Champlain Tower South, but potentially about the condition of thousands of buildings built during the same period and enduring the same harsh coastal conditions. While the Herald's investigation was ramping up, the families of the victims were asking their own questions. Miami-Dade firefighter Maggie Castro was one of the officials trying to provide answers behind closed doors in those private family briefings. The question is, um, have the engineers determined why the building fell, why the building collapsed, and why it collapsed the way that it did? Because there's uh, Champlain Towers North and Champlain Towers East and it's the same construction company, it's the same, their sister buildings. And the answer is that no, they have not made any determinations. That's gonna be done by NIST and by Miami-Dade Police. And they're nowhere near having all the evidence they need because we haven't even gotten to the bottom of the rubble pile. So the engineers that are on site are working to determine the stability of the rubble pile, the stability of the existing building, so that we can continue searching for your loved ones, not to determine why the building fell. Castro and her colleague, Assistant Fire Chief Ray Jadala, were still trying to help this community handle the emotional toll 
Their job wasn't to answer questions about the how or why of the collapse. That was for other experts and the investigative reporters. 11 days into the search and rescue operation, standing by a table littered with coffee cups and boxes of tissue, Jadala tells the families that they are not giving up, but warns them to be ready for the worst. So just you know, remember that we've been in a search and rescue since day one. We haven't uh, transitioned. In regards to what we're hoping for, some sort of void, we've already determined in areas underneath the parking garage, remember for uh, the course of this uh, week and a half, every area that we've been able to access to the parking garage has shown that it's compacted, basically no void. The parking garage was located directly under the pool deck. That's the area that the 2018 report we heard about earlier had said was dangerously damaged. But it's also the part of the pile where rescuers had been hoping to find those void spaces in the rubble, areas where people might have survived the collapse. Since day one, the rescue operation has been going around the clock, using everything from heavy machinery to hundreds of hands just filling bucket after bucket with debris. The work has been held up repeatedly by fires in the rubble, by wind and rain and bad weather. And now, Jadala told the families that safety engineers on the site had discovered a new problem, one that put the entire operation at risk. Last night, I told you that there was going to be some you know, concerns in regards to the possibility of shifting. So they began working, and of course, at 2.13 in the morning, I get the phone call that uh, part of the uh, building started to shake as a result of some of the debris that uh, was removed. We're continuing to reassess the, uh, the, the building, including the pile. As such, we had to move the personnel, and now we have to slowly move the machinery because the vibration is a concern with the pile and now with the building. What Jadala was telling the families was that trying to find their loved ones was actually weakening the building still standing and that the situation was getting more dangerous by the day. So with the potential for another disaster looming literally overhead, he pointed on the video screen to where the pile was pressed up against that standing section of the building and explained that things were getting too unstable and too unsafe to keep working. Remember, we were working in this area for quite some time. When we realized the, the building shifted, that's when we sent the engineers again and we determined that this pile here is holding up part of the building. It's a high probability that that uh, debris pile that's four stories high is actually holding up the building. And any movement with that debris pile, you know, it's, it's gonna make that building fall towards the, uh, the, the rest of the debris pile, so towards the east, and we would be back on square one. It's a stunning and terrifying piece of news the shifting, unstable pile has actually been helping to hold the building up and disturbing it further could bring it crashing down. Weeks after work on the site was completed, in an interview with local news station CBS4, Jadala was still haunted by how close they might have been to another tragedy. I started thinking, my God, I had for three days my men and women underneath that building, you know, tunneling, to get to a certain part of the building, hoping that we could find victims. And now I find out that the only thing that was holding up this building was the debris pile. It just put everything in perspective. I could have lost 30 men and women like that. 
without even realizing it. On top of all that, a tropical storm was now bearing down on South Florida, and the potential that powerful winds and heavy rain could soon batter the site meant it was time to make a crucial decision. It was time to demolish the standing structure, Rajadala. Our greatest concern is obviously the structure. We have uh, demolition experts that are going to bring down the building in a controlled fashion. And they're going to begin drilling holes into certain parts of the column to bring the building down. The idea is to bring it down where it's at and to allow it to kind of flush into Collins Avenue. Our concern, if we don't bring it down ourselves, that if the storm comes and brings it down, it could actually bring it down onto the pile and we're back to square one. This is the best plan for any possibility to get into any voids that we were unable to get to. We're expediting the process to give us the greatest ability, greatest chance of finding any additional survivors in the voids. Once the building is brought down, immediately once it's done, 24 to 36 hours, we should have been able to search all those areas that we have not been able to search until now. On July 4th, at 10.30 at night, what was left of Champlain Tower South was brought down. The controlled demolition was hauntingly lit up by huge spotlights. And although cameras and reporters were kept blocks away, the Miami Herald team actually captured the demolition from a boat just offshore as the building slumped down into itself in a cloud of dust. With the building now completely down, the work resumed without the worry of something looming dangerously overhead. But there would be no miracles here. On July 7th, Jadala had a solemn announcement, and he struggled with his own emotions as he told the families that hope had finally run out. All right. For almost two weeks now, I've been here, giving you guys truth and transparency, and nothing changes. However, today, I have to kind of deliver, (coughs) I have to uh, deliver some of the hardest news I've ever delivered in uh, my professional career. Uh, We completed the inspections of all grids, all apartments. We haven't had a hit, an alert, by a dog or the sound devices since the early initiative hours of the, uh, of the uh, search and rescue. Uh, as we continue to pull some of the pile, we go deeper and deeper. You know, we notice that again, the, the stress, the, the force of the uh, pressure of the, uh, the walls and the floors just pretty much, again, uh, sustain no chance of life. As such, with all the evidence from all the professionals, all the rescuers, including the Israeli team, FEMA, USAR, it has been determined that we are going to transition from search and rescue to search and recovery. The only thing that changes is two things. We remove the uh, live canine dogs and the sound devices 
but everything else stays. Personnel, machinery, etc. The frequency of the searches remain the same. Nothing else changes. Our, our sole responsibility at this point is to bring closure, to find your family members, our family members. Back to you. Lo único que va a cambiar en lo que es la misión de nosotros que ahora. Many of you guys have large families, extended families, friends, and I ask that you lean on each other. Later, Ray Jadala and Maggie Castro reflected on that moment and how the families had handled the news after days of anguish. It, it wasn't a shock. By the time that July 7th came, we had the most difficult you know, um, information I had to share with people. Definitely. Um, I was actually expecting a lot worse in regards to emotions. I would say already 70 or 80 percent of the family members had already accepted reality. I hope to God that they know that, you know, that we brought some sort of respect and dignity to the family members when we, you know, uh, that were deceased when we found them. In a way, it's a little comforting. I never imagined that the thing I came to do would turn into something that has changed my life. I never imagined becoming so close with so many people and just being a part of so many people's journey and them being a part of mine. A journey of loss and love and shock and grief. Nothing remained now of Champlain Tower South but rubble, a giant concrete tomb being picked apart piece by painful piece in the search for what was left of the lost. At the same time, the search for answers was picking up steam. Coming up next on Collapse, Disaster in Surfside. New clues in the Miami Herald's investigation. It appears that the contractors left out rebar that was called for in the plans, that these connections between the slab and the column were not secured with the amount of rebar that was planned by the engineer. How things fell apart. A forensic engineer pieces the collapse sequence back together. We started investigating, could the failure have initiated at the southern perimeter wall slab connection? And the role of regulation in this tragedy our condo laws just too lax. How crazy is it to have a system in place that says a developer builds a building, a, a massive tall structure, and the next time that that building sees a building official is 40 years later when it needs a recertification. All that and more coming up in our next episode of Collapse, Disaster in Surfside. Collapse, Disaster in Surfside is produced by Treefort Media, the Miami Herald, and the McClatchy Company. Visit miamiherald.com forward slash surfside dash podcast, that's all lowercase, to learn more about our investigation and to read articles mentioned in today's episode. And if you can, please rate the episode as well, as it'll help others find our podcast. Our hearts and our admiration go out to our guests who have so bravely share their stories so that we may bring to light the many stories of all the people 
impacted by this tragedy. We also want to thank the experts who have joined us for sharing their insights. Special thanks to the team at WLRN in Miami, as well as CBS 4 News in Miami, for sharing supplementary materials to help us tell this story. Special thanks to the team at WLRN in Miami, as well as CBS 4 News in Miami, for sharing supplementary materials to help us tell this story. Collapse, Disaster in Surfside was executive produced by Kelly Garner and Lisa Ammerman for Treefort Media, Monica Richardson and Rick Hirsch for the Miami Herald. I'm your host, Paul Bieben. The series was written and produced by Eric Salant and me, Paul Bieben, for Treefort Media. Editing by Maxwell Carney and Abigail Sullivan. Mixed by Maxwell Carney. Treefort Head of Audio is Tom Monahan. Line produced by Oscar Guido. English translations by Anne Liu and Lindsay Whistler. With additional production assistance by Jared Brom, Haley Mandelberg, Colin Motil, and Lindsay Whistler. For the Miami Herald, Monica Richardson serves as executive editor. Managing editor is Rick Hirsch. Senior Vice President of News, Kristen Roberts. Senior Vice President of Advertising, Tony Berg. McClatchy Managing Editor, Cynthia DuBose. Audience Development Editor, Adrian Rui. Miami Investigative Editor, Casey Frank. Miami Herald Senior Editor, Dave Wilson. Miami Herald Information Services, Monica Leal. Copyright 2021 by Treefort Media and the Miami Herald. Sound Recording Copyright 2021 by Treefort Media.